Our text today is Isaiah 21 through 23, and I don't know about you, but I have come to love this book in a way that I thought I would, but has been incredibly surprising at some levels. Part of the reason why I love this book is because the Old Testament prophets provide us some warnings that we need to hear. In the New Testament, Jesus warns the Pharisees about not listening. His caution to them is a caution that haunts me in a good way. He confronts them about building tombs to the prophets, decorating those tombs, and saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have honored the prophets. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, here's what they said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So every generation is prone to this error, which is, with a little bit of history, we could look back and see the past and say, if I lived then, I wouldn't do what was done then. And yet what Jesus says to them A prophet is right in the middle of you and you're not listening to him, me. The error is to look back in history with the clarity of time and the absence of specific pressures and think that we would have listened to the prophets. And yet, standing right in front of them is Jesus and they won't listen to him. And in so doing, by not listening to him and their assumption that they would have listened in the past, they affirm their blindness and their hypocrisy. Aren't you glad we don't do that? (laughs) Of course we do. In fact, one of the reasons that we're studying the book of Isaiah, one of the reasons we're studying the Old Testament prophet, this book is, I fear, that we might be unaccustomed to listening to the prophets. In fact, candidly, as I evaluate 30 years of pastoral ministry, I think one of my many failings is not teaching enough from the Old Testament prophets. As I think back, I believe this is only my second series on an Old Testament prophet in three decades. The Old Testament prophets, church, are helpful because they issue warnings about belief and behavior, and they issue those warnings to entire communities, to a people, not just individuals, but a whole community. They, they, they tend to cut through the sort of status quo religion that we tend to embrace. They identify strong cautions. And if you read the prophets, they will make you uncomfortable, because generally, the prophets were not well received until years later the wisdom of what they said now was fully understood. So as we walk through another series of warning texts in Isaiah 21 to 23, I think it's important for us to ask what our posture is toward this book. If you read Isaiah carefully and understand what he's saying, it should regularly push your buttons and make you think in ways that are uncomfortable. 
You know that we like church comfortable, right? We like our padded seats and songs that fit our particular genre of our appetite. We like the volume at a particular level. We like sitting by our friends and not talking to any annoying people who ask us inconvenient questions about how was your week? And we, we, we don't like when things get uncomfortable. In fact, for many of us, we don't even know what church is like when it's not comfortable. And one of the things that the last two years has helped us to see is that uncomfortability in culture and society, it surfaces things within us. Reading and studying the Bible should provide hope, always should provide hope, rooted in the gospel, but it also should challenge us in ways that we might not entirely like. Imagine you're a personal trainer and you're trying to help coach someone how to lose weight and you ask them, how can I help you? And their answer is, well, I wanna work out, but it's gotta be really easy. I don't wanna sweat and I don't wanna work hard, so help me. Of course not, it's not gonna work. So Isaiah 21 to 23 is that kind of text today. It's another heavy text. And can I remind you that the audience of this book was the people of God, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And the primary warning comes in chapter 22. It's to the people of God. And on either side of that warning are bookends, warnings to Babylon or about Babylon and warnings to Tyre about Tyre, a nation to the north. And what we're gonna see is this, these three chapters highlight things for us to watch out for. And what we're to watch out for as it relates to Babylon is trusting in earthly alliances, as it relates to Israel, to trusting in self-sufficiency, and as it relates to Tyre, trusting in our financial success. So when the people of God were afraid, they typically tend towards one of these three unique dangers. So first, earthly alliances. This first oracle in chapter 21 relates to the futility of putting our trust in alliances that human beings make. Last week I suggested to you that nations are the most powerful earthly thing that humans create and we create those things together out of a sense of common interest and common commitments. Throughout history, whether it's an alliance, whether it's a deal, whether it's a mutual co cooperation, all of those things are pursued out of a desire for mutual benefit. You help me, I'll help you, let's work together. So whether it's a partnership or a treaty or politics or associations or coalitions, they're formed in order to provide protection. If you grew up in a non-United States environment and you're familiar with a parliament kind of government, you might be familiar with a coalition government where different groups coalesce together for a season to rule together. They may not agree on a host of things, but they agree on one thing, if we work together, we'll be able to rule. That's what human beings do. Now the nation in view here is Babylon. If you skip all the way ahead to verse nine, you'll see it, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And can I remind you that Babylon is a nation, but it's also representative. It's a 
metaphor in the Bible for the highest earthly evil. Look to Revelation 18 and you'll see this. So the apostle John viewed the entire world as one vast Babylon. And this prophecy in particular looks to the future as a warning to God's people and especially to King Hezekiah that they not put their trust in the powerful nation of Babylon. As Assyria gets closer, Hezekiah needs to look to God, not to Babylon. Sadly, this would not be a warning that Hezekiah would heed. In chapter 39 of Isaiah, we'll come to it, the king, Hezekiah, attempts to impress envoys from Babylon, and to impress them, he does what you do to impress people. You show them your wealth, your treasuries, your military, and Isaiah comes on the scene in Isaiah 39.5 and confronts him for the foolishness of trying to impress the Babylonians because Hezekiah wants their help. Now, in chapter 21, we see that Babylon is described in verse 1 as the wilderness in the sea. Remember, Isaiah is filled with poetic imagery, the wilderness in the sea, and it was devastated by whirlwinds. Now, I don't know what your mind picture is of Babylon. You may think of some ancient Near East, kind of not very well developed nation. I just wanna help you understand Babylon was a world superpower. Here's a couple pictures. This is an artist's rendering of what the city of Babylon would have looked like during the time that Isaiah was written. We're not talking about tents and camels and people making fires outside like living nomads. We're talking about a major metropolitan area with massive armies and massive populations and massive developments and technology and military might. So Isaiah is concerned because Babylon could save the people of Israel from the coming threat. And yet look at verse two. A stern vision is told to me, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media, or, yes, O media, all the sighings she has caused I will bring to an end. So Isaiah highlights a coming betrayal the alliance, the treaty, the agreement to work together is going to crumble. There will be political tricks. There will be national backstabbings, and this will lead to destruction. And as a result, Isaiah has in mind internal turmoil in verses 3 and 4 that he's going to feel. He, he sees what is happening, and inside of him he feels sick. He says, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I bow, I'm bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. He's sick. We're placing our trust in Babylon, not in God. That's his message. Commentator Gary Smith writes this, the nation of Israel was depending on Babylon to help them undermine the power of Assyria. But if Judah follows this path, they will soon find out that Babylon will give them no help at all. Instead, Babylon will be defeated and the people of Judah will be oppressed. The prophet's message is simply this, do not put your trust in Babylon or in any political power. So the people were afraid because of the rising Assyrian threat. And that fear that they felt created the temptation to place their trust in an earthly alliance. In other words, what happened is their practical trust in God was eclipsed by their practical trust in human power. And here's the real challenge. 
is that this is the way the world works. Alliances are what humans do, and they aren't always bad. Often they're really good. But when these alliances form in such a way, and it doesn't matter where it happens, alliances, or to use another word, politics. Politics is just simply the gathering of people together for the purpose of working together for a common cause or a common good. Families have politics, neighborhood HOAs, who they have politics, don't they? <laughs> Schools have politics, school board meetings have politics, just watch the news. Churches have politics. Governments have politics. So this is the way that we work. And here's what we need. We need Jesus-loving Christians in all of those settings with one key difference. So if you work in a realm, in a public space, or in a small, kind of unknown space, where you're trying to navigate the challenge of people trying to work together, listen to me, we need Christians in those spaces, but we need Christians who act like Christians in those spaces. We need Christians, listen to me, whose trust exceeds, trust in Jesus exceeds their trust in alliances. Now listen to me, you're gonna have to search your heart to know where that line is, but just know that biblical history is filled with examples of earthly alliances that were birthed out of spiritual distrust in the living God. And if your identity isn't rooted in who your God is, and you try and enter into those spaces, you won't be able to act in a manner that fits with what it means to be a Christian. I'll give you an example, unrelated to any of this, so you can take a breath. You ever been to a soccer game and can't figure out why a particular dad, I'll just use dads, is screaming his head off at the ref or a basketball game? Beyond the ungodliness of just that moment, the fact of the matter is, is in many cases, it's because the identity of that man or that dad is being lived out on the basketball court. He wasn't any good, but his kids are gonna be good, or even more so, he's not saved enough for college, so that kid's gotta get a scholarship and his success is his only hope that the kid's not gonna have a gazillion dollars of debt moving on, so he's got to get a D1 scholarship, so the pressure is on, and so in his mind, that referee is the barrier not only to his son's ability to do his athletics well, that referee is the barrier to family identity. That ref is the barrier to financial success. And when that happens, when that identity gets underneath your life, listen to me, you will do just about anything in order to get that. You'll act like a complete idiot in front of others because that identity has totally taken over you. So underneath the identity of Israel is this simple truth from Psalm 20 in verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So earthly alliances is where the nation of Israel went. Much of the book of Isaiah is about, do you trust God or do you trust Babylon? Do you trust me? or not. Here's the second thing. We see the matter of self-sufficiency. The second warning here is specifically to the nation of Israel, and he identifies that this is the valley of vision. Chapter 22, verse one, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. So interesting, J Jerusalem is not in a valley. It's actually on the 
top of a small summit. And so he's writing to God's people about the valley that he's taking them through. And it would seem that this valley is a great opportunity for them to see things that they wouldn't see. I've said it before, although this has been a hard season of life in ministry, church, this is a really good time to be a Christian. This is a really good time for you to demonstrate whether or not the fruit of the Spirit really is the fruit of your life. This is a great opportunity not to live in fear, not to be angry or bitter, but instead to be the kind of people who, like my king is Jesus, my kingdom's there, and therefore in light of this, here's how I'm gonna conduct myself in the world and the marketplace. This is a great time to demonstrate the difference of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In verses one and two, we see though that the people, they aren't listening. He says, what do you mean that you've gone up, all of you to the housetops, you who are full of shouting and tumultuous city and exultant town? The idea is that these, these people are, are partying and they're celebrating when they should be weeping. They, they think that in their alliance with Babylon that they're gonna be rescued, but they haven't got to the root problem. They've just delayed their problems. And Isaiah is weeping and full of alarm in verses four to seven. He says, therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and the shouting to mountains. Isaiah sees a day of judgment and he laments this, that God, in verse eight, has taken away the covering of Judah. God does this in order to help his people see things that they wouldn't see in a normal season. And then we see in verse eight what exactly they did. When the people knew that they were in trouble, they scrambled. In verse eight, it says, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. This was a small fortress just, to the, uh, just outside of the temple area, and it was a place where all of their armaments were kept. So you looked to your bunker. You looked to your stash. You looked to your weaponry, he says, Verse nine, and you saw the breaches of the city of David, that they were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool. So the, the point is, is that they looked around and they saw the, the weak spots where they were vulnerable, and they began to work to repair those. In fact, Hezekiah famously built a tunnel that moved water from the Gihon Springs outside of the wall inside the city. So he built a, a, a tunnel in order to move that water so that when there was a siege, if the enemy tried to cut off the water, they wouldn't be able to because the water had already flowed inside the city. So they did all of these things. And listen to me, these things in and of themselves weren't necessarily bad. But the problem is what we read in verse 11b. Look at what it says. Look at this. This is very important. This is the central thought for this text. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. They collected waters. They counted houses. They broke down the houses. They made a reservoir. But they didn't look to him who did it. They looked to the weapons, they saw the breaches in the wall, but they didn't see him who planned it long ago. 
So in all of their planning and all of their thinking and all of their analyzing and all of their doing, they were busy, 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 and they forgot to stop and ask themselves, are we trusted in God right now? Now again, it's important to keep things in balance because some of their preparations would have been wise actions. It would have been good leadership. They would have been foolish leaders to not do some of these things. In fact, the book of the Proverbs says this, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes on blindly and suffers the consequences. So Isaiah isn't commending here some sort of resigned fatalism or the lack of wise planning and preparation. But what he's doing, listen very carefully, and you're gonna have to figure out how this applies in your life and where it does it and in what spaces it needs to be really thought about. He's rebuking the people because they were trusting in their preparations. They were trusting in their analyzation. They they were trusting in their strategy. In other words, they were so full of panic and fear that they put all of their focus on how to regain control of the situation, and this ended up being a subtle form of self-sufficiency because in their planning, they never thought to ask the question, how is this pushing us more towards the Lord? One of the personal lessons from the last two years for me is this. I'm a planner I'm a doer, I'm an analyzer to a fault. I've run up time and time and time again against issues that I'm just like, Lord, I have, I have no idea what to do anymore. And instead of, a couple months ago, instead of running into that wall and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do anymore, I found myself actually saying, God, I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm thankful that you've created an unsettledness in the soil of self-sufficiency. Doesn't matter what it is. Masks, vaccines, ethnic harmony. There's no strategy to sufficiently navigate through all of those challenges with everyone in every case always being happy with everything that we do. It's just, it's that kind of world that we're in. And I think it's actually a moment for us to say, hmm, this is a moment for us actually to say, God, would you help me? Because I so desperately need you. If you're a Christian, let me speak directly to you. I trust that you know that our control issues don't evaporate when we come to Christ. And my question for you, believer, would be, where do you find self-sufficiency surfacing? It may show up in your emotions as you struggle with intense levels of frustration or anger or sadness. For some of you, it may surface in thinking too much about your finances, working hard on that side hustle, positioning yourself in a particular way at work. Some of you may have cut back on your generosity because you think, I gotta hoard our money. It can manifest itself in watching the news too much. Embracing conspiracy theories that make you feel like you're in the know what's really going on. Or over-researching something to death because you've got to figure it out. It can surface in talking out of both sides of your mouth with different groups of people. And even pretending as if everything is okay because at the end of the day, what's really going on is your trust in Jesus is being tested. Can I just encourage you, wherever that thing lands, to embrace that reality and say, Jesus, I'm thankful for the opportunity 
to learn deeper levels of trust in you. If you're not a Christian, let me speak to you. This last year may have shown you moments where you've come face to face with your inability to control your own life. Maybe you found frightening levels of fear or anger or anxiety or maybe even verbal outbursts. Maybe you found yourself becoming obsessive about something or having trouble sleeping. And maybe that this year has shown you how vulnerable you are and you're looking to some answers to questions like, why am I here and what is my life all about and how do I deal with my guilt? The message of the gospel is simply that Jesus answers all of those questions in himself. He gets an identity underneath all other identities and when that identity of who you are in Christ is firmly fixed because you've turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, it begins to inform all of those other questions And that's a conversation we'd love to have with you. In verses 12 through 14, the people of Israel are not paying attention to what it is that's happening in their life. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing of sackcloth, And behold, joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They're not actually saying that, but that's the tone. Like, they're partying as if nothing matters anymore. And then puts their trust, they put their trust in self-sufficient leaders. In verses 15 through 25, we find an example of Illustration of the futility of placing too much hope on people. If you look at verse 25, you'll see the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and the load that was on it will be cut off. The idea is we put our hope on this person's gonna help us and even that peg falls off. Several years ago, I did a series here at College Park, I think it was 2012 or so, on the book of Lamentations, and the reason we did that series is because I sensed that we were struggling to figure out how to live as exiles. And in the fourth chapter of the book of Lamentations, there are some things that we place our sufficiency in, and here were some of them that I shared we put our security on fixating on financial security or treating people's like, people like saviors or craving cultural comfort or idolizing spiritual leaders or presuming divine favor. The, the point is, is that self-sufficiency takes many forms. And we need to ask ourselves in our generation, in what ways are we really not trusting the Lord? Now again, let me come back to the very first thing that I said at the sermon that Isaiah and other prophets are helpful because they make us feel uncomfortable. They make us think, what are the ways that something has gone just a little too far? So earthly alliances, self-sufficiency, here's the third one, financial success. It should come as no surprise that suddenly now money is part of the equation. Look at chapter 23, an oracle concerning Tyre. Now, Tyre doesn't maybe initially generate any thoughts for you, but if I were to say prior to 9-11, a prophecy concerning the Twin Towers. Prior to 9-11, the Twin Towers would have been representative of financial strength. 
Tyre was a seaport to the north of Israel. It's in the modern-day country of Lebanon. And they were known for massive commerce. It was a city in the nation of Phoenicia, had this massive commercial port, and it benefited from Mediterranean travel and commerce because from Tyre there were major inland roads. And so Tyre becomes a symbol of merchandise, commerce, and economies. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, Babylon is pictured as this evil world system, but we also hear about the great prostitute who is seated on many waters in Revelation 17. So again, John seems to borrow from these ideas in Isaiah of how the world system works in its worst forms. In chapters 23, verses one and three, we see the calling for lament because of the destruction. We see, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you, and on many waters your revenue was the grain of she, um, Shehehor and the harvest of the Nile, and you were the merchant of the nations. So the idea is that Tyre was a stronghold of financial wealth. And the point is this. The reason that Isaiah mentions Tyre is for us to know that God is not only sovereign over nations and kings, but he's also sovereign over economies and commerce and wealth. And yet here again is another category that in our human experience, we often can place so much sinful trust It's fascinating that Isaiah, along with talking about Babylon, puts this emphasis here, these bookends to the warnings of God's people. Ray Ortland says this in his commentary, Babylon and Tyre together typify all human societies. Babylon symbolizes ruthless political power and Tyre symbolizes dishonest commercial success. Babylon was a land power, Tyre a sea power. Babylon used force, Tyre used seduction. The strategy is different from one culture to the next, but what matters in the one kingdom of man is money and power and ego and visceral pleasures, all the things that belong to time rather than eternity. This is our brilliant, heroic, costly, and empty world. This was written in the 8th century. This 8th century B.C., We have not changed as human beings. So read the Old Testament prophets and get into them and realize what it is that can be learned here. So in conclusion, let me ask you just three questions. Number one, right now, today, where you're at spiritually, Christian, do you have a posture of listening? Right now. Are you characterized as a person who is listening? Because most of the history of God's people is characterized by not being known as a listening people. The story of Israel is not, wow, did they listen to Moses. (laughs) The story of Israel is that they are stiff-necked. They don't listen. And can I plead with you to be the kind of person who's quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry? and realize that most of the Bible records people who are not like this. Ask the Lord, God help me today to listen 
Secondly, have selfishness or politics or materialism grabbed too much of your heart? Have politics or selfishness or materialism grabbed too much of your heart? You know, don't you, that fear and self-protection drive us into these allurements and they're historical. This is not new. Ray Ortland says this, the prophets understood the power of Babylon and Tyre of this world. They saw that this world is not only the opponent of faith, it is also the seductress of faith. The world not only, sorry, I lost my place. The world not only punishes all who follow Christ, it also panders, tempting believers away from Christ. The devil doesn't care either way. He'll use harsh intimidation, or he'll use soft seduction. In other words, the devil can use secularization and liberal theology and ungodly worldviews. Yes, be wary of those. And the devil can use seduction and power and self-protection in order to ruin us. Ortland says the world not only punishes all who follow Christ, it panders to them. He'll use whatever works as long as we lose sight of Christ so that our faith no longer overcomes. This is the spiritual battle that must be fought deep in our hearts every single day. Heavy text, let me end with some hope. Look at the last verse in chapter 23. Here's the last concluding statement, and that is this, that God aims to redeem what is broken in us and around us. At the end of chapter 23, there is this strange statement, and yet it isn't strange when you know the heart of God regarding Tyre, that her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. It means that God can take, listen to me, the brokenness of Tyre. He can take the brokenness of Babylon. He can take the brokenness of God's people and he can turn it and redeem it in order for him to be glorified. Listen to me. God doesn't need your money. It's already his. God doesn't need you to fix the world. He's got it. God doesn't need your earthly alliances and your politics in order to figure out the trajectory of the world. He's in charge. There's one party system in heaven, and it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? But down here on earth right now, we need to know and be reminded that our little hearts can jump into these arenas, and in the same way that Israel and people of old have done, we can put far too much trust in these spaces. So dear church, This is where Isaiah and the prophets lead us if we'll listen. They show us a beautiful path of redemption such that the testimony of Isaiah is clear. God saves sinners. He saves sinners. So don't stop turning to him especially when you're afraid, especially when you're nervous, especially when you are self-protecting. God saves sinners. Lord Jesus, we pray that today you would rescue us from 
an over-reliance on earthly systems, an over-reliance on ourselves, and an over-reliance on our money. God, these are close to the vest. We feel it. I sure, I sure feel it today. And I pray, though, that you would now move us to you one step closer of what it means to trust in your grace, rely on your mercy, and to be confident that you're the one that can rescue us, even from ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.